Good evening. Obviously, I've decided to continue with our church history study. Obviously, you've decided to show up. So uh, we'll take us through uh, for the next... Uh, you know, the first part of church history is... Uh, I, I, don't think, I love it. I don't think it's boring, but it's nothing like the second half church history. So it kind of gets into the meat, and then it'll bring us up to the present day in, the, in, a, in a couple of months. So we'll do this up to Christmas time. And if I'm not dead by then, then after that first of the year, probably start a good study of Jeremiah. So... Uh, Let's do some church history. Let's pray first. Father, thank you for this gathering. Thank you for the time that you grant us. May you teach us from the history of the church. Show us where we fit in, and may we be faithful in that time period. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, let's take a look. Quick review. You need a review. The course on the timeline of history. New Testament books are written, first century. Uh, there's a, I know you can't read that font. You probably can't. Uh, unless you're me, and I still got to get up there. But those are the books of the New Testament, written up to the um, to the first century. By the end of the first century, Christianity spread through most of the empire and beyond. So you've got ver- various portions of the empire, the Roman Empire, and a little bit beyond. You've got the pre-Constantine era. Uh, Christian documents are being written. Those are the books of the Bible. You've also have some other documents that we looked at: the Didache, Barnabas, Gospel of Barnabas, First and Second Clement, Shepherd of Hermas. Uh, all of these found in the Apostolic Fathers, or many of them, anyway. Some Gnostic writings as well showed up. The Roman Catholic Church uh, made Bible and the tradition its authorities, not just the Bible. Um, of course, with, as Protestants, we use the Bible as our only uh, portion for authority, although we, we may look at tradition, but authority, authority-wise, we only look at the Bible. Uh, we had Roman persecution, the martyrs. Uh, here's just a picture of the arena, one of the arenas. In the pre-Constantine era, as I said earlier, we had Gnosticism showed up. Satan's always on the heels of the truth. Um, spreading, uh, essentially saying all spirit is good, all matter is evil. Uh, Montanus, or Montanus, however you'd like to pronounce that, he teaches um, a continuing revelation as part of authority. Modern charismatics, they were way back when. Uh, the, the Montanists, uh, you've got the church identifying its inspired writings. Um, as late as 367, AD 367, it was pretty much official on which of the writings were inspired by our Lord. Roman Christianity, Constantine conquers Rome and then sanctions Christianity, moves his capital to Constantinople. The church compromises with the Roman society. It's just now, hey, we're all Christian. That's just all the way it is. Get baptized in the name of Christ and uh, we're all Christian now. At one time, we all hated Christ and we all wanted to kill Christians. Now we've got a Roman uh, emperor and we're all Christian. Monasticism comes up because now uh, Christianity is no longer, no one's suffering for being a Christian. So uh, men would go out and live in the deserts in order to suffer for Christ. Various controversies surrounding the Trinity. God as uh, one God existing eternally as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We went through that, took some tests. We met Augustine, the saint, St. Augustine and the relics. Uh, Ambrose, who was bishop. Uh, this bishop who was Going up against the emperor, the emperor knows everything, but Ambrose was much smarter. You've got an innovative church. Augustine of Hippo, that's St. Augustine, versus Pelagius. Is God sovereign? Does man have a choice? Donatism, you've always got a, a faction in there that uh, uh, doesn't want Christians who have um, capitulated to the, to the persecution to come back. Donatism was one of them. Uh, various governments, war breaking out all over the empire and various parts of the empire. Catholic doctrine begins to morph relics, the Pope, the Apocrypha, none of which is biblical, but it begins to morph. And we've shown each night how some of that has evolved. The barbarian invasions, uh, which just essentially um, speaks of people coming from various parts of the uh, of Europe into Rome until they finally captured Rome. And Rome is no longer Roman. It's filled with uh, German and uh, German barbarians, at least called barbarians, because no one really knew what to call them. They're just crazy people from out of town, and they've come in and taken over the old Roman Empire. That's just what I call them. I don't think they were, but uh, uh, in the early Middle Ages, you've got Saint Patrick. We know about Saint Patrick, who was an Englishman who was captured as a slave in Ireland. He escaped from Ireland, went back home to England, and had a dream to go back to Ireland, where he was held captive. And spread the gospel, and he did. And he apparently kicked all the snakes out of Ireland. Just one of the strange things, strange traditions that comes out of there. Uh, we had missions to England. 
uh, missions to Europe, all over Europe, with the Franks and the Saxons, the development of the Holy Roman Empire, which would be modern uh, Germany, under Charlemagne, who had been the first emperor, the Crusades. Uh, that's essentially the popes telling people, look, our, the Holy Land, where our Lord Jesus was born and crucified, uh, has been taken over by Muslims. Go over there if you want to secure your place in heaven for eternity. Go over there and kill everyone there. People did. Muslims still today hate us for what happened in the Middle Ages. And those, um, and those what, what am I saying? What's the word? I just said it. i got to go back to the previous slide. To the Crusades. I was going to say the barbarian invasions, but I knew it wasn't that. We meet various people, Anselm, Abelard, Aquinas, uh, Occam, William of Occam, Gothic architecture. We've looked at all this as just by way of review. We had a papal schism. We had one pope. We had two popes. We had three popes, each one excommunicating the other. Uh, the history of, of popery, uh, not the good-smelling stuff, but the, the men <laughs> who think that they are descendants or appointed in the place of Peter, so many have been wicked men. There have been good and godly men, no doubt. And some we, we can go back in history and see, but uh, it's a mess. John Wycliffe came about. We looked at him last week. And John Hus, uh, the goose. These were pre-early reformers, 1300s, and then the 1400s. And they began to say, look, the Bible and its authority. We're no longer looking to the Pope. We're no longer looking to a council we believe, or a king or an emperor. The Bible. And this was, uh, this got bought, Wycliffe died before they could kill him, but they were going to kill him. And Hus they killed, they lied to him and killed him. And so uh, that brings us up to where we have been. So let's take a look, preview for what we'll look tonight. Erasmus, Desiderius Erasmus, will prepare the way for Martin Luther and essentially just by bringing in Greek manuscripts. Uh, Luther was a troubled monk, the greatest monk who ever lived. Uh, and I believe that. The greatest monk who ever lived never could get out of his sin. And he even says, I was the best monk ever. I could not get right with God. Uh, Luther opposes the indulgences. We'll look at that tonight. Luther and the Bible and reason are authoritative. Luther leaves the monastery and marries uh, Katie von Bora or Catherine von Bora. So let's review some of the Catholic doctrine and the merits of the saints. Uh, this, this, too, is from my buddy Roy. He put this little animation together. So we've got heaven, purgatory, hell, and that's you and me. Non-Catholics. According to Catholics, when a non-Catholic dies, he goes straight to hell. There he goes. A non-Catholic, when he dies, goes straight to hell. That's the only place for it. According to Catholics, when a Catholic dies, if he did more bad deeds than good, then he goes to purgatory for a while. Uh, to pay for the unbalanced bad deeds. So when a Catholic dies, weighs his life more bad than good, okay, has to go to purgatory. So he'll go over here, bad, outweigh the good, he'll, he'll dwell there for a time, pay his price, and then go into heaven. According to Catholics, when a Catholic dies, if he did more bad deeds than good, then he goes to purgatory for a while and pays for unbalanced deeds, and there he goes into heaven. As to the saints, according to Catholics, when a, when a Catholic dies, if he did more good deeds than bad, he is a saint and goes straight to heaven. It's one like St. Augustine. He did more good deeds than bad. He goes straight to heaven. No time in purgatory. Here's where it really gets fun. But what do we do with the extra good deeds that he did in order to get, that he did not need to get into heaven? So he's got a, a, an extra, he did this many good deeds. He only needed this many good deeds. And so he's got this many good deeds left over. What do you do with those? I don't know. I don't know. I do not know that much. But as you know, they go into a bank account managed by the Pope called the Treasury of Merit. Now, you ex-Catholics, you may or may not have known that. Sometimes that's not preached. Uh, I've known some Catholics that know that. Most of the Catholics I know do not know that. I don't know. Look, I don't know all, I don't know all the details. I don't. That, there's no reason to ask me. I'm not the one to ask. All the saints and what happened, what they did, who measured it, I don't know. Uh, all, I just know that the basic facts, or why does this think that, why does that think that, I don't know. Why do Baptists think this and other Baptists think that? Um, but it just, or why do people in some Bible churches think this and others think that? So we're all, there's, there's always some disagreement in there. I don't know all of that. I just know that this is the Catholic doctrine. 
and so, while you're on earth, if you can tap into some of the good deeds left over by the saints, do so. It's there for you. There's also indulgences. So by paying money to an indulgent salesman, you ever heard of such? Or by viewing and meditating on relics, you can buy some of the merit in the treasury of merit to shorten your time in purgatory. So you pay it. We're going to meet John Tetzel later. That's a picture of John uh, selling the indulgences. So you pay that. And there it comes. Wow. You're getting better all the time. Time in purgatory has been removed, either from you or someone you love that you paid it for. So we review the sources of authority that we've looked at over the last few weeks. The source of authority in the church in the early period, it was revelation, what God revealed. The apostles spread it, book of Acts, early church fathers, what God has said. We note in the first classes that in the early church, revelation from God, the Bible was the primary authority for Christians. In the Roman period, it became revelation plus tradition. So we've got the Bible plus what some people say. This sounds good. Let's use that. They added tradition, leadership of and the pronouncements of bishops, etc., as a second source of authority as high as the Bible. What do we do about this? This says this. Bible says this. What do you say, Bishop? What do you say, Pope? Well, I like the Bible, but here's what we're going to do. Uh, that, that's where tradition comes in. In the high Middle Ages, it was revelation plus tradition plus reason. Let's reason this out. Revelation, by the way, every time something is added, revelation takes a hit and is even lower, uh, less esteemed. Then in the high Middle Ages, Christian philosophers felt they could prove Christian doctrine with reason. Reason, they thought, was an equal authority with revelation or tradition. So people still think that today. You don't have to be Catholic to think that. Many people that call themselves Protestants think that. Now we'll see that during the Reformation, Christian humanists and reformers like Martin Luther rejected tradition as an authority. That left them with revelation and reason. So we're getting into this time of renaissance. Before we do... Look at this year that changed history. After the 100 Years' War ended in 1453 with England retreating to the British Isles. Uh, You've got that same year, Ottoman Muslims, or the Turks, conquered the last remnant of the Eastern Roman Empire. So it lasted from 313 to 1453. The ancient city of Constantinople, begun by Constantine, is finally overtaken. On May 28, 1453, Orthodox and Catholic church members gathered for communion in the Hagia Sophia. Uh, Hagia means uh, holy. Sophia means wisdom in Constantinople. The next day, the church became a mosque. That's a year that changed history. It's a sad day, but one that needed to be. In this year that changed, that changed history, many Christian scholars from Constantinople fled west in the direction of Rome. So the Turks are coming in. We're going to move back to the West. Among the valued items they took with them were manuscripts, hereafter referred to as MSS, especially New Testament manuscripts in the original Greek language. There was a lot of good that came out of that and what flooded back into the West from the East. This influx of Greek manuscripts influenced a renaissance of interest in ancient rhetoric, art, philosophy, and writing. That is known today when you go to college, the humanities. So if you're a humanist, you are influenced or you are studying the humanities. Rhetoric, which is communications, art, philosophy, writing. Renaissance scholars were known as humanists because they focused on practical human actions and interests. Today we call humanism a little bit more self-centered. And yet it was that way then too. If you're a humanist, you believe that man can do anything. If he can conceive it, he can achieve it. Man is as high as the high end, does whatever he or she chooses to do and wants to do, uh, no, no room for God and his authority and his sovereignty. Uh, but these humanists were slightly different. They, and the ones we're talking about tonight, especially with Erasmus, were ones that, wanted, that took a great interest in ancient writings and bringing it back, and this is what will create the Renaissance. Among Christian scholars, the Renaissance, which means renewal, led to a renewed interest in the original text of the New Testament. Up to this point, it's been in Latin. You've got the printing press. That's a picture of O. Johannes. Gutenberg, the introduction of the printing press, had a huge effect on facilitating the spread of information. Starting around 1455, just a couple of years after the, the Turks invaded Constantinople, with the Gutenberg Bible, religious texts were printed in mass production and spread across Europe. This was a time of amazing spread of information. Uh, after the, the last remnant of Constantinople is taken 
you've got all of these, this information in the printing press. Think about it. Up to that time, you, you have to write out the Bible. Now you can put it on a printing press and mass produce things. People are now learning to read, perhaps for the first time. Information is going everywhere. And by the way, what I don't have here on the slideshow tonight is what happened in Spain moving to what we call the New World. All the, the migration going from Spain, from, from Christopher Columbus uh, to Cortez to all the other names of these people that come over to South America, North America, uh, Latin America, landing on the islands Hispaniola and, and uh, what we call Latin America today and the way they, Florida, Santa Fe, New Mexico, Mexico itself and, and the missions, the Catholic missions, uh, the slavery that, that resulted from it. There were some Protestants, French Protestants that had made it to the new land and they were killed by the Catholics and the Catholics killed the Indians and they enslaved black people and, and Indian people. It's a mess, just a big, huge mess. It's embarrassing, quite frankly. Uh, so I don't have that on there tonight, but all that's going on in, from Spain to the new world. So Yes, ma'am. We're bringing that. Middle Ages is going to end with the invasion of Constantinople in 1453, right around that time. So when you see these rumblings of reform, uh, and the time period following the Middle Ages, just after 1453, is referred to, as I said, the Renaissance of classical skills in the art of philosophy. So you've got these so-called Dark Ages or Middle Ages. At the end of those Dark Ages, called the High Middle Ages, papal power and prestige reached its zenith, and then it fell off at the papal schism. schism. Still can't ever get that right. When we move into this time of rebirth and knowledge, these rudimentary slides are my old buddy Roy Ledgerwood's slides, uh, and I keep them, and I will always keep them for sentimental value. Um, there are a few in here. Today we don't hold humanists in high esteem since they're typically irreligious, stressing human achievement. But in the Renaissance, humanists were those who rejected tradition as an authority, seeking a return to ancient Greek and Latin texts to ascertain the truth. Tired of tradition. Uh, maybe you grew up in a denomination where, where people weren't looking at the Bible. And you just say, I just want to know what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? If there's a, a problem in society today, should women be preachers as, as it's out there? Should the church accept L, B, G, T, and, and uh, the, the extra, all the other letters that go with that? What should, should we be ordaining gay and lesbians to the ministry? Should we? All, well, if you don't have the Bible, you can just make any opinion you want. But if you have the Bible, we can go back to the Bible and say, okay, here's what the Bible says. Here's what God thinks about this lifestyle. Here's what God thinks about female teachers over men. Here's what God thinks about everything. Let's go back to the Bible. Not a tradition. Well, in the tradition of our church, we've always done this. Okay, fine, thank you. Let's leave that there. The Reformers wanted to get back to what the Bible said. And let's get back to the texts that bring out the truth. And that's what's going on with the Renaissance or in the Renaissance and the Reformation. In the Northern Europe, humanistic scholars turned to the Greek and Hebrew texts of the Bible as opposed to the Latin Vulgate, which is what Jerome had given them this standard text for the Roman Empire. That was their language. And this paved the way for later Protestant reformers. The Bible is now in its original language what it was written, at least the New Testament in Greek, Old Testament in Hebrew. You probably know that. And so we meet this amazing man named Desiderius Erasmus. Died in 1536. How many of you ever read... Uh, the Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther. Okay. Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther. <laughs> Listen, if you can get a copy of The Bondage of the Will, read the introduction in the first chapter, and you've read the whole book. Uh, so, and then you can tell everybody, I've read it. Uh, but in the introduction, Martin Luther does not like Erasmus. Uh, in fact, he can't stand Erasmus. And so as we study Erasmus, you'll wonder why, because he seemed like a pretty good guy, but Luther didn't like him. And if Luther didn't like you, you knew it. You absolutely knew it. He was, uh, it's amazing to me sometimes how, how, uh, how we talk about him, how wonderful. And he was a hero, but he had to be the pit bull that he was to do what he did. You couldn't be a nice guy and, be, and do what Martin Luther did. Erasmus was a young man, and as a young man, he had been taught by the brothers of the common life, uh, monastery teachers who whetted his taste for the Greek language. He was a brilliant man by all accounts. He was the son of a Catholic priest. Think about that which means he was an orphan, and he was adopted by one. <laughs> and he was raised in a monastery, which he hated. He loathed the monastery. He left it and opposed monasticism. He recognized the value of Holy Scripture, opposing many of the abuses in the Catholic Church. Now, he will never leave the Catholic Church. He's like many of you have been. You've, you've stayed in your church. You were in a Baptist church or Lutheran church, whatever it may be, and you felt compelled to stay there 
and try to reform it from the inside. And then you left. That's why you're here. You realize that's not going anywhere. Not, not saying it's not worth the effort, but you'll figure out along the way it's best probably just to move on. Uh, he tried to reform it from the inside. He saw the abuses of it, and, uh, and he wouldn't leave it. And Luther felt the same way, but Luther did end up leaving, as we know. He was not a Protestant, but he sought reform of the Roman Catholic Church from within. In 1516, he edited and published the first Greek New Testament, a tool that would launch the Protestant Reformation. Now, there was another group that were trying to publish it too, and he knew it, and he rushed it. He rushed it big time, and it had all kinds of errors in it, so he had to go back. He was the first to publish it, but he had to go back many times and re-edit, 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 and bring it back to... So you'll see various editions. You'll, you'll hear of various editions of Erasmus's Greek New Testament. But he got it published in 1516. And now the original words of the apostles were available to anyone. The interesting thing about Erasmus is that he thought that he would find a bunch of Greek manuscripts. You know how many he found how many he put his original Greek New Testament together with? Six. Six. And he didn't have the long end, he didn't have the ending of the book of Revelation. So he went to the book of Revelation and uh, the last few verses of chapter 21, or 22, I should say. And uh, he guessed at what the Greek would be from the Latin. And he produced all kinds of errors uh, that, that the Greek didn't say. So, not doctrinal errors, but just difficulties. Because when those manuscripts were found, compare them together and you're going, that's not, not quite right. Uh, Erasmus, anyone know Latin here? Can anyone pronounce Latin? Because if, if you can't, then I can just say whatever I want. Uh, Incuridon Militus Christiani. Uh, this is the, the handbook or the hand sword of the Christian soldier. He wrote this devotional book, the hand sword of the Christian soldier. It became a popular guide to people seeking something deeper than what was commonly perceived as Roman Catholic superstition. So people bought it, picked it up. He wrote, let me give you some signs, some evidence whereby you can determine whether or not your soul is diseased or perhaps even dead. If you are troubled with indigestion, if it is difficult to retain food, it is quite apparent that there is something physically wrong with your body, right? We've all been there. Now, the Word of God has been referred to as the food of the soul. If it is unpalatable, if it nauseates you, there can be little doubt that the palate of your soul is infected with diseases. Right, that's a great, great illustration, isn't it? Look, you get sick from eating bad food, and you know that. You're in the bathroom all night. If the Word of God upsets you, you've got a problem with your soul. You're thinking of that. That is so simple. Why didn't I come up with that, Right? He says, you may have a veneration for the remains of St. Paul. You worship his bones, hidden away and preserved in nooks and niches. But you fail to worship the great mind of Paul hidden in the scriptures. The whole, to place the whole of religion in external ceremonies is sublime stupidity, he says. This amounts to a revolt against the spirit of the gospel. External ceremonies, jump through this hoop, do this, say that, say that prayer, say that prayer six times, and this prayer four times. He said that is sublime stupidity. 16th century Catholic scholar writing such. He says, I absolutely dissent from those people who don't want the Holy Scriptures to be read in translation by the unlearned, as if Christ taught such complex doctrines that hardly anyone outside a handful of theologians could understand it. But see, that was what was being taught in the day, is that you can't understand it. And Jesus, Erasmus is saying, there's no way. Everything about the gospel is understandable. Anyone can get it. He says, I should prefer that all women, even of the lowest rank, should read the evangelists and epistles of Paul. I wish these writings were translated into all the languages of the human race so that they could be read and studied, not just by the Irish and the Scots, but by the Turks, as well as the Saracens, I would hope that the farmer might chant a holy text to his plow or at his plow. The spinner sing it as she sits by her wheel. So this is a man who wanted the Bible in the hands of everyone. Read it. And he's not speaking lowly of women. It's just that women weren't educated in those days. So he's thinking these people, the lowest, those who have no education, I want them to have enough education to know the Bible. His critical edition of the Greek New Testament, you probably can't see that, but on the, on the left is uh, Latin and on the right is Greek. Actually, it's on the right is, is, uh, 
is Latin, left is Greek, collected handwritten manuscripts and collated them to make the first printed edition of the Greek New Testament and made what we call a diglot, Latin on the right, Greek on the left. So you can compare the two. Printed on printing presses, the Greek New Testament was now readily available for the reformers. Without knowing it, he was going to help launch, basically setting up, putting the ball on the tee for Martin Luther to come strike it off. So yeah, it was originally written in Greek, but when the Roman Empire took over, their, their language was Latin. So those Greek manuscripts took a back seat to Latin, was being re- rewritten. Um, uh, the Latin Vulgate, there was lots of Latin versions of the Bible, but Jerome was summoned to put together the Latin Vulgate, one standard Bible. And it had been based on the Greek. He was a great scholar. So their sources were the same? Yes, of course, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But Latin doesn't say, doesn't use all the same words that Greek does. Uh, and some of the words, as you know, in, in things like uh, uh, the Latin Bible, where Mary is said, Hail Mary, full of grace, uh, O oh, oh, graceful one, one who's, who's, whom God has found grace in, or whom, to whom has found grace in the eyes of God, uh, it's been taken over the edge to say this prayer to Mary, Hail, Hail Mary, full of grace. That's what the Latin says. It's not what the Greek says. He mocks the Pope. You'll enjoy this. Erasmus wrote popular parodies mocking the pompous claims of the papacy. After Pope Julius, a particularly evil pope, died, Erasmus wrote a comedy about what it would be like when Julius approaches the pearly gates and finds them locked. (laughs) Julius, what the devil is this? These doors won't open? Now I'm getting really mad. I'll knock the doors down. Somebody come and open this door right away. Peter, first tell me who you are. Julius, as if you couldn't see for yourself. You can see my triple crown as well as my cloak gleaming with gold and gems. I don't doubt you recognize these two letters, PM, unless you've forgotten how to read. Peter, I expect they stand for Pestiferous Maximus. (laughs) It means the disease-ridden. What it means is Pontifex Maximus. If you don't hurry up, and open these gates, I'll unleash my thunderbolt of excommunication with which I used to terrify great kings on the earth. Peter, just tell me please what you mean by all this bombast about bulls. Bull was a, um, a decree. About bulls, bolts of thunder, and maledictions. I never heard from Christ a single one of these words. Perhaps you used to terrify people with that bluster, but it counts for nothing here. Here we deal only in the truth. Now, this conversation didn't happen, obviously, but it's Erasmus' uh, pun on it. Erasmus' effect, he laid the foundation and influenced every major reformer, including Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, William Tyndale, and Henry VIII. Some people say, how does Henry VIII fit in there? Henry VIII made a huge reformation in England. He became his own pope. Uh, so he's part of the reformation. Wasn't a very good guy, but part of the reformation. Yet he himself remained within the Catholic Church, that's Erasmus, seeking to reform it from the inside. He would not go outside and did not appreciate the fact that Luther did. So, enter Martin Luther. Anyone ever been to Germany and done, the, done a, a tour of, of, uh, of Martin Luther's day? Anyone? Really? How many of you would go if I planned a trip like that? Now, only half of you actually would if I actually did. You guys need to get your passports ready. <laughs> well, I had the, the privilege, my, my old buddy, my deceased buddy, Roy Ledgerwood, took me to Germany, and, and we, I took all the pictures I had of me in these pictures because it was self-serving, but uh, it's amazing. I've been to these places. It's a wonderful thing to see and, and be a part of, and I recommend it. Um, looks like I might have to do it, right? In 1501, Martin Luther came from his home in Mansfield to Erfurt to attend college. He was 17 years old. Erfurt was a quaint little town full of churches and monasteries. This bridge of shops existed in Martin's day. I took that picture, and these are two pictures that come together. These little shops there are pretty neat. Um, This university building itself was destroyed in World War II. Only this reconstructed portal remained in the 90s. So I got right here, and you move off to the side, and you can see today they're rebuilding around that portal, which existed back in his day. So it's, uh, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Uh, this is still there. We walked inside there. Luther probably lived in the student housing like these houses that still exist there. In Erfurt, he's studying to be a monk. He graduated in 1505 when he was 21. 
Then he entered graduate school studying to become a lawyer at the wish of his father. So that's not what it looked like then, but that's the building. It's been obviously beautified. Quaint little place. For some reason, this is where things change. After a few months, after he, he graduated Erford, he took leave, a leave of absence and went home. After a few weeks, he returned. On the way back, uh, he approached Erford at this spot near Stotterheim, which when he was there, a thunderstorm hit and erupted, and a bolt of lightning struck near Luther, causing him to exclaim, St. Anne, and the St. Anne, by the way, that's Mary's mama, help me, I will become a monk. Now, when you said I want to become a monk in those days, you were promising to become a Christian. Not just that I'm going to go study or a monk, I'm going to become a Christian. That's where I'm going to go study, I'm going to devote my life to you. And so he makes this vow right here at this location, he kept his promise and entered the Augustinian Monastery in Erfurt in 1506. We went there to do a tour, and it was only in German, so we just had to walk around and look at things without a, a real tour guide, but it was still fun. When in these rooms, this, in these rooms, uh, Luther uh, began seeking God as a monk. He would beat himself up against the wall. He would scream at the devil. He would have these conversations. Uh, it was strange just to walk in there and look around. Martin Luther was in here and uh, went through the, what he did there. Uh, he made a good progress as a monk and was also ordained priest in the cathedral at Erfurt in 1507. Isn't that beautiful? He presided over his first mass as priest in the church of the Augustinian cloister in 1507 as a priest. This is a good drawing of Luther. dates back to 1520, at least it's believed. It's one of the earliest images we have of him, uh, perhaps why he was attending Erfurt. Uh, he persuaded or he pursued righteousness through monastic works vigorously. He fasted, denied himself blankets in the cold, whipped himself in his cell. He especially concentrated on confession and carrying out the penance assigned as a way to seek to be pleasing to God. He took it seriously. He knew he was a sinner. He especially had trouble with anxiety, depression, and despair. He feared God and did not know how to make himself acceptable to God. You know what he thought of God? His words, I hated him. He hated God. He hated God because he could never be, in his own mind, holy enough. He could never go to confession and feel good about himself. He could never take Mass and, and feel good about himself. He could never learn Scripture and feel good about himself. He knew he was a sinner. He hated God, and he says it. In 1510, he was chosen to represent his cloister at Rome, a great opportunity given the plethora of relics in Rome. So he thought, as a man looking for truth and to feel good about his conscience, have peace in his conscience, uh, he was looking forward to going to Rome. He could get many years off purgatory for meditating on these. At least he believes so. So he goes to Rome from Erford. In Rome, he says, I was a frantic saint. I ran through all the churches and catacombs and believed everything, their lies and falsehood. I celebrated several masses in Rome and almost regretted that my father and mother were still living. For I would like to have redeemed them from purgatory with my masses and other good works and prayers. I heard people laughingly boast in the inn that some celebrated the Mass, saying to the bread and wine, Bread thou art, and bread thou wilt remain. Sarcastically. It's like they're eating the bread. Now remember, the bread and the wine becomes the body and blood of Jesus. He says, I hear these people saying, Your bread going in, your bread coming out. They knew it. He said, Then they elevated it. I was young and pious monk who was hurt by such words. If popes and cardinals celebrated Mass that way, I had been deceived since I had heard many masses by them. After his return to Erfurt, Luther was transferred to the Augustinian Monastery in Wittenberg. There he earned a doctor's degree in theology at that university. It was a new university at the time. Uh, and it's just north, a little north, uh, northeast of Erfurt. Beautiful little town. John Staupitz, Luther's anxiety continued to plague him, and he sought consolation by confessing even more to his superior, <clears throat> John Staupitz. Stoppa to himself had some understanding of the gospel, assigned Luther to teach the Bible in the University of Wittenberg. So he's going to now teach the Bible. And studying the Bible, this is two pictures I had to put together. While studying the Bible in his monastery, Luther began to discover the gospel, teaching the following books. Psalms, in 1513 to 1515, he loved the Psalms. Teaching Romans, in 1515 to 1516, and teaching Galatians, uh, up through 1517. That's three heavy-hitting books. You read those, you're going to know something about the gospel. He's seeing things. They're different. This is not what, it's not reality of what he's living, what he's learning in the Bible. He said, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. 
Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. And he knew he was unjust. No matter how hard he tried to be just, he knew he was unjust. So the justice of God was going to overtake him. Hence, he hated God. He said, my situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement, the just shall live by faith. That's Romans 1.17. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that justice by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, Luther says, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, it now became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me the gate to heaven. The just shall live by faith. What's that a quote from in the Old Testament? Anybody know? Yeah, Habakkuk 2. A book not often read, right? Yeah. So we look at trust and justification in Romans. Paul says in Romans 5 or 3, 25 to 26, this was to demonstrate his justice. The demonstration, I say, of his justice at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. But to this, to the one, but to the one who does not work, but trust in him who justifies the ungodly, his trust is reckoned to him as justification. Romans 4, 5. Read Romans. Read Romans verse by verse, uh, your life will change. When somebody cuts you, you want to bleed Romans. That's what a pastor told me one time. Somebody asks you any question, you run to Romans. You know Romans, you know it all. But you can never realize or think that you actually know it all. It appears that Luther discovered the gospel sometime in 1516 at the age of 31. We see in Luther's newfound discovery reflected in letters that he wrote in 1516. He says this, Now I should like to know whether your soul, tired of its own righteousness, is learning to be revived by and to trust in the righteousness of Christ. For some try with all their might to be just and good without knowing the righteousness of God. While you were here, you were one who held this opinion, or rather error. So was I, and I am still fighting against the error without having conquered it yet. In other words, he's telling people that think they're good, and that God's going to reward because they think they're good, you're wrong. You're in error. He says, beware of aspiring to such purity that you will not wish to be looked upon as a sinner or to be one. We're going to look at that a little more carefully in a minute. For Christ dwells only in sinners. He has made your sins his own, and he has made his righteousness yours. So let's look at that again. Beware of aspiring to such purity that you will not wish to be looked upon as a sinner or to be one. What do you think about that? I love that phrase, but beware. Okay, I'm aspiring to such purity. I'm aspiring to that. I want to be holy in God's sight uh, by my works. I want to be a good person, right? Beware of doing that, that you will not wish to be looked upon as a sinner or to be one. Isn't that what we're all doing? I am. I am absolutely, positively guilty of wanting you, this church, to look upon me as a guy who has it all together. I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to, right? I do no wrong. You don't know me well enough to know if I do wrong. And you probably don't want to know that. And I don't, in order to be your pastor, I, whatever it is I do wrong, and I'm not a, a wrongdoer, I'm not going to do it in front of you. I'm going to put on the best face I can. I'm going to look the best I can. So this hits me between the eyes, and probably you as well. Beware of aspiring Lance to such purity that you will not wish to be looked upon as a sinner or to be one. I'm guilty, without a doubt. You do know, every one of you, that I am a wretched sinner. We are all human, but I am the pastor. Do you expect more from me? Which is what, what makes me fall into that category of I have to be on top. I cannot, and, and that's a great challenge, but I tell you that not because I'm about to confess to you some horrible sin, but you have to know what Chris is probably about to say is you're a wretch. You have to know that so that if you see something, well, you always remember, well, Lance is just one of us. Uh, for Luther to say it, the, the cantankerous guy that he was, 
Uh, I like that. Beware of aspiring to such purity that you will not wish to be looked upon as a sinner or to be one. And we are, as he was. Oh, yeah. Yeah, especially as he got older. Especially as he got older. So the indulgence controversy. Here's uh, one of the big issues in the Reformation. As a shepherd or as a pastor, Luther was preaching daily in the parish church at Wittenberg. Uh, it's this huge tower of Wittenberg, and he was eager to share his new faith with his flock. Right at this time, Pope Leo X was building St. Peter's Basilica. He needed money to complete the task and to pay artists like Michelangelo. Albert of Hohenzollern, he wanted to be Archbishop of Mainz, but he was too young. There's a picture of him there in the middle. He was already archbishop of two other cities, so the pope could charge a particularly high price for the archbishopric. You want it? All right. Pay enough money, you'll get it. Albert borrowed the money from the Bank of Fugers. By the way, I found that there are still three families of the Fugers today. Uh, He borrowed the money from the bank, then paid the pope in full. Albert, there it is, there's the bank. Come back. Pope Leo then proclaimed a special indulgence on Albert's lands. Half of the money would go to Rome and half to Albert to pay back his loan. So this created an idea. An indulgence salesman named John Tetzel was assigned to preach and collect indulgence money in the province across the river from Wittenberg where Luther was pastor and professor. You could not collect. uh, The the man in charge of Wittenberg, his name was Frederick, Frederick uh, of Saxony also known as Frederick the Wise, and he wouldn't allow the sailing of the sale of indulgences in Wittenberg. So he had to go just right outside the city, and that's where Tetzel set up his, his, uh, his little coffer, his little coffee can. And what indulgences are, are these, you come pay me, and if you pay me in the name of Christ, then uh, someone that you know and love, in their name, you will get them, you will take, you will t- take time off of their time in purgatory. Well, who wouldn't do that if you don't know any different? Who's not going to do that? Purgatory runs the entire system in Roman Catholicism. It's the way to get money. That's what built St. Peter's Basilica. Uh, that's what's there today. Um, that's, that's how you get on people's, uh, into their conscience. Pay this, and you'll not only help your people who have gone to purgatory, you'll help yourself as well. So he sets up shop right across where Luther is the pastor and professor. He says this, Tetzel, what are you thinking about? Why do you hesitate to convert yourself? Why don't you have fears about your sins? Are you perhaps ashamed to visit the cross with a candle and yet not ashamed to visit a tavern? Are you ashamed to go to the apostolic confessors but not ashamed to go to a dance? So he's getting in their conscience now. Behold, you are on the raging sea of this world in storm and in danger, not knowing if you will safely reach the harbor of salvation. You should know that all who confess and in penance put alms into the coffer will obtain complete remission of all their sins. Why are you standing there? Run for the salvation of your souls. And people did. Don't you hear, he says? Imagine he's got his hand to his ear. Don't you hear? The voices of your wailing dead parents who say, have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon me because we are in severe punishment and pain. From this you could redeem us all with alms. And yet you do not want to do so. So now John Tetzel is hearing from the grave. And people are believing this. Well, they go to mediums today. That's all he was, and he knew how to get the money. Tetzel says, open your ears, as the father says to the son. We have created you, fed you, cared for you, left you our temporal goods. Why then are you so cruel and harsh that you do not want to save us, though it only takes a little? This is still mom and dad talking from the grave. You let us lie in flame so that we only slowly come to the promised glory. So we created you. We gave you life. We fed you, and you're going to let us rot here in purgatory? Tetzel said, as soon as a coffer, a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Now that's in English. Um, Saying in Latin, I mean, apparently it sounded just as good. He said, this indulgent is so great that even if you had fornicated with the Virgin Mary, you could be forgiven. With this indulgence, you can be forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future. Folks, that is straight from the pit of hell itself. As a pastor, people from Luther's congregation were crossing the river to buy these indulgences and telling him that they were guaranteed to go to heaven. Now, how many of you saw the movie Luther a few years ago? 
Yeah, they show the scene where he goes to, to Rome. He, he's disenchanted. He comes back. People, people in his congregation are, look, I have a piece of paper. Says, he says, that's worthless. Worthless. Luther wanted to stop his flock from believing Tetzel's lies, so he proposed a scholarly debate. By the way, that tower is still there. That's a modern picture. We got off the plane. If you've ever flown overnight, you usually leave here in the afternoon. You fly all night. By the time you get to Europe, if you land in Amsterdam or, or London, it's um, 8 a.m. their time, but to you, it's, it's 2 in the morning. Um, anyway, we get there. We drive to Germany. And seeing, you don't want to go to sleep from, from Amsterdam to Germany. It's just too beautiful, but you're dying. And we get there, and you got to climb. There's no elevator in that tower. You want to go to the top? you got to climb those stairs. And we did. It was great. And I have no recollection of what happened after that. But uh, <laughs> no, actually, uh, we got back, finished that, had coffee in town, blah, blah, blah. Got to the hotel. Have you ever been so tired you can't sleep? That's where I was. So I laid awake all night. But anyway, he wanted to stop his flock from Tetzel's lies. So he proposed a scholarly debate. Let's, let's debate about it. So. On October 31st, 1517, he nailed the 95 propositions he wanted to debate to the door of the castle church. This is normal. There's the door over there on the left. Um, that door is memorialized today. It's a metal door with those 95 theses etched into it. It's metal. say etched, but imprinted on it. Um, this was normal. It's not like he went up, I'm going to show them and nail this to the door. That's what people did. You want to have a debate about something? Go put it on the church door and let's talk about it. So it's not uh, any, an act of rebellion. The same day Luther wrote to to the cardinal, saying, Under your most distinguished name, papal indulgences are offered for the construction of St. Peter. Now, I don't so much complain about the quacking of the preachers, but I bewail the gross misunderstanding among the people. Evidently, the poor souls believe that when they have bought indulgence letters, they are then assured of their salvation. So in thesis number five, he said, The Pope neither desires nor is able to remit any penalties except those imposed by his own authority. Those are fighting words. In number 21, he says, those indulgence preachers are in error who say that a man is absolved from every penalty and saved by papal indulgences. Number 27, they preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. And 32, those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned. These are not things that you can just agree to disagree on. Uh, Luther put these up, and this is what Made life very difficult for him. Christians, and number 43, Christians are to be taught that he who gives to the poor or lends to the needy does a better deed than he who buys indulgences. And number 75, to consider papal indulgences so great that they should, could absolve a man even if he had done the impossible and had violated the mother of God is madness. Of course it's madness. That's what we say about you're crazy, you're insane. And that's what people were believing. People still believe in sanity. So he was summoned to appear before Cardinal Kajdan in Augsburg. Kajtan uh, was uh, ordered not to debate with Luther, but merely to demand a retraction. Luther reports the meeting. He pushed me extremely hard with a certain extravagante of Pope Clement VI. Here, he said, here you see that the Pope determines that the merits of Christ from the treasury of indulgences. Do you believe this or don't you? He did not allow any explanations or counterarguments, though he himself threw around many strong arguments and shouted, Luther got permission to reply in writing, so the next day when Luther gave Cashton the document, he disdainfully flung it, flung back my little sheet of paper, and yelled again for me to recant. About ten times I started to say something, and each time he thundered back and took over the conversation. By the way, if somebody keeps interrupting you, it means they're losing, and they just don't want to hear it. They just get louder. If people get louder and louder and louder, that's all they got. Finally, Luther said, I started to shout too. If it can be shown that Extravagante teaches that Christ's merits are the treasury of indulgences, then I will recant as you wish. Luther refused to recant unless he could be shown where, there, where he was in error. Of course, later on he's going to go before the Diet and have to say the same thing. The cardinal told him to get out and not appear before him again until he was ready to recant. Luther snuck out of town and went back to Wittenberg. People wonder how he survived. Um, this guy here, Frederick the Wise. He was the elector of Saxony, and he loved Luther. Yeah, Luther brought people to his college in Wittenberg. Luther was drawing students to the new university, and Frederick did not like German money going to Rome. So when Luther, Luther wasn't killed, the office of the Holy Emperor was up for election. So he came about during a, an election year. The Pope didn't want Charles V of Spain to be elected. He was lobbying with Frederick the Wise to get him to vote on his side, and the Turks were invading. So various issues going on. 
that kept Luther from being killed. Later on, he'll die without being killed uh, by, uh, by the powers that be. So in what brief time we have left, um, people today, I'm, more than ever, I'm surprised. People will say, um, are you a Reformed church? Are you Reformed? Of course you're Reformed. If you're not Catholic, you're Reformed. That's what the Reformation was. You're either Catholic or you're Reformed. Protestant, you protested the Catholic Church, you're Reformed. And so, uh, a couple of questions here, some Reformation questions. Number one, how is one saved? By works? By grace? By both? Catholics? Mormons will say it's by, it's by God's grace, but you need to work. He did 80%, you need to do 20 Where does the church authority rest? With the Pope? With the Bible? With tradition? What is the church? Is it a body of professing Christians? Is it baptized infants? The government and the church combined? And what is the Christian life? Is it a life of holiness? Is it a life of just doing good works, of giving indulgences? Well, Reformation answers, as you know. How is one saved? Through faith alone. Sola fide. Where does the church authority rest? By the Scripture. Sola Scriptura. What is life's purpose? Soli Deo Gloria. To the glory of God alone. We're going to have it. Too many people don't know what these are. I'm amazed. What is the church? It is a spiritual body of converted believers in Christ. Tonight we're going we're to go over to the gym and do a baptism. Baptism of people who have turned in their testimonies. They understand who Christ is. They understand that they're sinners. They understand what it means to be saved, and they want to be baptized. It's not about children being baptized. They do not comprise the church. They have no faith, and pouring water on their heads does nothing but make them wet. Nothing more. What is the Christian life? It is holy living, not keeping sacramental rules. Those are the Reformation answers. And as we go further in this study... We will look at men like Erasmus as we did. We'll do part two of Martin Luther. Ulrich Zwingli, you may not know him. John Calvin, John Knox, Henry VIII, Thomas Cranmer, William Tyndale, and a whole host of others as we plow through this portion of church history. You ready? Okay. I mean, I'm doing it for you. Show up. Be on time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the Reformation. Thank you for protecting your church, allowing wretched sinners like us to come to know the truth. That is only by your grace. We've done nothing to deserve it. We owe you all glory. We pray that you would receive all glory. And Lord, I pray that that's all we would want is for you to receive glory. That we would want none. And that nothing would be about us. That everything we do and say would be unto your glory. Thank you for our time tonight. I pray, Lord, for our time in the the baptistry that you would be honored and glorified at the, the the coming out party of those who will be baptized to tell the world they love Jesus because he loves them first. We pray in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. Mm-hmm.